Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to discuss Hamilton's rejection of an urban boundary expansion. We dispel some myths and misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccine for children. Parliament resumes and Global's chief political correspondent David Aiken tells us about some of the key issues facing MPs. When will the federal and Ontario governments come together on a new daycare deal? A rally at Queen's Park focuses on boosting paid sick days and we look ahead to the CFL playoffs the gmh podcast starts now this is the good morning hamilton podcast on 900 chml i don't think there's any question that we have an affordable housing crisis in our city today and as councillor um, partridge has pointed out on numerous occasions if you look at water down the supply does not equal lower costs that is the voice of Councillor John Paul Danko after Hamilton councillors voted Friday to hold firm to the city's urban boundary. They voted 13-3 to 3 as City Council rejected a staff recommendation to add more than 1,300 hectares of rural lands to Hamilton's urban boundary by 2051 and will try to accommodate future population growth through a combination of infill and intensification. A critics on the other hand, warn that the decision will rob buyers of housing choice in the future. Here to talk about this is the mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. Fred, thanks for joining us today, and welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Uh, hopefully everybody had a good weekend. I hope so. Uh, was this a no-brainer decision in your mind? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. It was uh, a challenging one, a difficult one, but but I think one that's appropriate for the time. Uh, you know, when we think about what's going on in our globe, quite frankly, and, and, and clearly in Canada, climate change is an issue. Sustainability as a, as a community is an issue. Containing costs uh, is an issue. And from all of those perspectives, uh, I think we're we're making the right decision for the moment. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, that that's, uh, that's a forever decision. It means that uh, in the short term, we're looking to maximize the potential of LRT, which uh, has always uh, been a, a focused on uh, new urban intensification and, and redevelopment along the corridor, and uh, all of the infilling spaces that uh, that are still you know a 20-year supply within the city of Hamilton in terms of uh, housing. So there are still greenfield uh, opportunities. Uh, within the existing urban boundary, and uh, we'll measure as we go. So, uh, you know, I put forward a direction that uh, each and every year we get uh, information from our staff about how the uh, housing uptake is is coming, how we're accommodating, you know, the the projected 100,000 new residents that are coming into our community. Are they being accommodated in the uh, in the intensification strategy, or do we need to adjust in the future? So I would say it's the right right decision for the time. Uh, but let's be careful and, and cautious about what the impacts might be and, and how we might adjust to that, uh, you know, year to year going forward. Is one of the biggest difficulties of infill and intensification within the boundaries uh, convincing or enticing developers to go that route? Um, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we already have developers that are uh, very, very poised to do uh, infill development or higher density development in the inner city. Uh, we're, we're already seeing that happening uh, downtown in a very, pretty significant way and in other places. So we we're seeing more higher density uh, developments happening, uh, you know, throughout the uh, the entire city, uh, you know, even in Waterdown. Uh, so we've got some higher density, uh, you know, buildings, apartment buildings and rental units going up, as well as uh, fully owned condominiums. 
And I think that's certainly part of the demand. And so uh, I, I don't think we're missing. I don't think we're missing anything. I think what uh, what we have is some developers that have both uh, opportunities in the inner city and have, have invested in lands for future development to going forward. Uh, you know, to be fair, uh, you know, when we look at our existing city, uh, it is it is expanded, and uh, the developers have provided housing on lands that used to be, you know, either greenfield or farmer's fields uh, going back, uh, you know, generations. So uh, that doesn't mean it's the doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. I think with without uh, the development that we've had in the past, we would not be able to accommodate the 550,000 people we have in our city today. The expectation is that growth will continue to uh, to carry on, and more in- immigration and more people coming into our community needs to be need to be accommodated somewhere. But I think the best option for us right now is to encourage uh, developers to look at infill opportunities. Uh, both uh, both single family and uh, and higher density residential uh, in the existing urban boundary, and then measure how that is impacting uh, you know future supply and pricing and everything else that comes with it. Uh, you know, I would say the supply issue has uh, you know we've in the last year through unusual circumstances we've seen you know increases in pricing you know by you know thirty to forty percent, and that's. Uh, that had nothing to do with an urban boundary expansion. It had everything to do with current market conditions, uh, you know, the demand for people in terms of what they're looking for, competitive pricing, uh, which uh, you know certainly has been pushing the uh, the prices up higher, higher, and and migration out of Toronto, which certainly has challenged a lot of suburban communities in and around Toronto with uh, increased pricing. So I'm not sure that you can put all of that onto uh, you know the urban boundary expansion issue. But uh, certainly it's something to be mindful of going forward. We have uh, one more minute with Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We know that the provincial government has a very different view on what we should be doing in terms of expansion in Hamilton. Do you expect the province to step in and flex its muscle? Well, it, it's, it, that's hard to know. I mean, they certainly uh, they certainly put, put forward a letter. The minister sent a letter to the city saying, uh, you know, it's irresponsible for us to not have an urban boundary expansion. I, I do know that. This government has a much more growth-oriented uh, approach. Um, uh, I wouldn't say I would say that it's not entirely wrong, but I, I I think it would be entirely wrong if they actually stepped in and overrode the uh, the city's desire to uh, to move forward on a no urban growth strategy, no urban boundary growth strategy. So I would I would hope they would not, but uh, hard to know if they do or they don't. I, there's also an appeals process to this that uh, you know would very much go to uh, the LPAT, the uh, the uh, the former uh, Ontario Municipal Board that uh, hears hearings from complaints or appeals on the on the decision. So all of that is still going to be in play. So we'll have to uh, work through those issues to see how that uh, future outcome holds for our city, and hopefully the province will adhere to our choice. We'll have to leave it there, Mayor Fred. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Rick. Have a great day. That is Fred Eisenberger, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, chatting about Friday's big vote at City Hall on uh, holding the line on urban boundary expansion. They're going to look at infill and uh, intensification-related developments. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. On Friday, Health Canada announced that children 5 to 11 will soon be able to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Some parents 
you know, understandably have questions in regards to safety, efficacy, and the benefits of the vaccine. Here to talk about it is Dr. Jeff Pernica, the head of Division of Infectious Disease at McMaster Children's Hospital and an associate professor at McMaster University, as well as Dr. Rachel Lowith, a family physician. Uh, Dr. Pernica, Dr. Lowith, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, Jeff, maybe we'll start with you on this. A uh, COVID-19 vaccine for children uh, is now, as I mentioned, being delivered across the country. Would you call this an exciting time in the fight against COVID-19? Oh, absolutely. I think there are are lots of uh, children and families who are very excited about the newer developments and are really looking forward to, to getting vaccinated, either because they're worried about their child developing severe COVID-19 infection or they're worried about their child you know, giving COVID-19 to somebody who is at higher risk, such as elderly people or people with immunocompromising conditions. And finally, I, I know that there's tons of kids who are just sick of missing things, whether it's school or activities or, or whatnot, and are looking for some peace of mind, you know, um, about not getting COVID-19 and missing something else. With the uh, winter months, as you mentioned, on the way, uh, this is probably a good time for this children's vaccine to be delivered. Dr. Uh, Lowith, uh, your, your thoughts on, uh, you know, today being the days we enter those colder months and we know that the virus uh, can spread a little more easily as we're mostly indoors for the next few months. Yeah, I completely agree with what Dr. Pernica said that, um, you know, that while the risk, the individual risk to the average child is fairly low, we know from a societal impact and from trying to want to be around uh, family members who may be at higher risk, especially heading into the winter months that you mentioned and the holiday seasons, um, it's really important to protect our our children as best as we can so that they can do all those normal uh, childhood activities that everybody wants to get back to. Dr. Pernica, is the kids vaccine is this a game changer or just another step in the process uh i haven't really thought about where to classify it specifically but i i I do know that it is extremely good news uh not only for for parents and and children and families but for physicians as well for and 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 i agree with what dr loweth just said like i i would say that a large proportion of the healthcare workforce is, is really burnt out from all of the things that have happened during the pandemic. And having a vaccine for another segment of society will undoubtedly mean fewer cases and fewer problems down the road. Uh, Rachel, parent anxiety is real, whether it's related to the shot's safety and or efficacy. What should parents know about the children's COVID-19 vaccine? I think what's really important to know um, is that from the trials that were done and from the real-time data that we're seeing from the rollout in the United States, that um, that there's incredible safety to this vaccine um, and very rigorous studies have gone into this and making sure um, that it is safe for our children. I myself have four children in that 5 to 11 uh, age range, um, so I know exactly how most parents are feeling about, um, you know, the excitement about this vaccine uh, becoming available for our kids now, as well as, you know, slight anxiety. You know, we never like to, you know, cause any discomfort to our children that they don't have to have. But I feel uh, very overwhelming and very confident that this vaccine is the right thing to be doing for all of our children at this point in time. Our two guests here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Rachel Loweth, family physician and
and Dr. Jeff Pernica, head of the Division of Infectious Disease at McMaster Children's Hospital and associate professor at McMaster University. Uh, Dr. Pernica, one of the things we've heard time and time again, either when the original or the adult size, I guess, vaccine was developed and now the children's vaccine is uh, they haven't had a lot of time to, to test these things and I'm not really buying into the clinical trials. This seems to be rushed. Can we dispel this misconception? I, I feel like a lot of people hold um, vaccines to a higher standard than they would other medications that are prescribed by a doctor or, or nurse practitioner or whomever. And, and that really is turned around. The thing that I say to, to patients on a, on a regular basis in my clinic is that the safety system for the evaluation and authorization of vaccines is much more developed than for any intervention that one's doctor will ever prescribe, right? We know more about this vaccine than the vast majority of medications. And it has occurred over a relatively short time frame. I mean, COVID-19 just showed up, you know, um, uh, a little bit more than a year and a half ago. But there has been unbelievable vigilance. And Dr. Loweth has already brought this up, right, that we have already, at the t- as of this morning, there have been almost 3 million children ages 5 to 11 immunized in the United States starting at the beginning of November. And so I, I feel very strongly that we know quite a lot about this vaccine, given how much it's been used in adults and older people, and now even how much it has been used in teenagers and younger people, both in North America and the rest of the world. Dr. Lowith, last question to you. Uh, Dr. Pernica just said the vaccine or a vaccine is held to a higher standard. Uh, is the pill form that's being developed by the likes of Pfizer and Merck, is that is that going to be maybe more acceptable to people? I mean, I agree with Dr. Pernica in the sense that uh, there seems to be a bit of a cognitive issue when anything's done as a vaccination as opposed to an oral form. Um, I don't think I can really speak too much to, to this pill that's in the works, both in, in terms of my knowledge of the details of it and exactly how that will work and how people will um, accept that. Although we do know that people, whenever there's an injection, sometimes seem to have a bit more difficulty with that there. Uh, but again, I want to reiterate that I have um, the utmost confidence in this. Um, and again, as a, a parent myself, I uh, will be lining up to have my kids vaccinated as soon as as soon as we are able to, which will hopefully be in the next coming weeks. Great information, and uh, thank you for sharing it both. Dr. Pernica, Dr. Lowith, thanks for the time today. Thank you. That is, doc- that is Dr. Jeff Pernica and Dr. Rachel Lowith here talking about the COVID-19 vaccine for children, which uh, a massive shipment landing over the weekend in Hamilton and now being delivered across the country. And uh, long story short, it is safe. It is effective. Get your children inoculated and uh, let's take one step further forward in uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. While the 44th Parliament will convene for the first First time today, and there's lots on the agenda, and that means it's going to be a busy time for our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, who joins us now from Ottawa. David, good morning. We'll start with uh, the election of the speaker this afternoon, and then uh, the government is going to set out its agenda in the speech from the throne tomorrow. What can we expect? Well, I think, uh, you know, we heard the the prime minister talk about uh, his agenda during the campaign. Uh, the election campaign and after, pandemic is still uh, sort of job one. We still got to get rid of COVID-19. 
And so the federal government will be doing what it can to support provinces who are really you know, on the front lines of the, the fight against the pandemic. One thing the feds will be talking about is uh, we saw our first batch of pediatric vaccines. I think they arrived at uh, Hamilton Airport last night, and they're going to be shipped now uh, around the country. So that's important. So COVID and pandemic, that's, that's still job one. But then after that, I think the government is really going to take a look at, right now, a couple of uh, affordability issues. In fact, we had a poll out over the weekend from our friends at Ipsos that said affordability and cost of living is the number one issue for voters and so I think the government's going to have to pay attention to that. You know, inflation's at a 30-year high right now. The other affordability issue, housing. Um, available housing, affordable housing. This will be the first parliament with a minister of housing. That's uh, Toronto MP Ahmed Hussein. He was in cabinet in the last parliament. He is again this time. But I think it's a pretty significant clue that when you designate a minister of housing, that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is going to have something about, uh, to say about that this week. Now, we know this is a minority government still, which means the Liberals will need to govern with the help of others. How are the politics of this par- uh, parliament shaping up? They're going to look a lot like the last parliament, I'm afraid. And, you know, that's a lot of people saying, why do we have this election? We got a minority, and it's going to be the, ND- the Liberals looking to the NDP and Jagmeet Singh to get a lot of stuff done. The NDP and the Liberals have been talking with each other about areas of cooperation. There's no formal deal. There's no coalition. I know that rumor was out there. There's no coalition. But there is, I think the NDP will be pushing the Liberals, for example, to extend some of those COVID benefits, uh, particularly for seniors, for some people who still cannot get back in the workforce because of the pandemic, tourism businesses, for, for example, where we're still down on capacity. So that's what the NDP will be pushing for. We'll see if the Liberals respond. Uh, the Conservatives, the official opposition, you know, still still got some internal divisions there over vaccine mandates. Uh, there's internal divisions over the leadership of Aaron O'Toole. So I think that will be the political drama we'll be watching over the next couple of weeks. We'll have to leave it there. We're pressed out of time. Uh, David, really appreciate the time and enjoy day one of Parliament number 44. Yep, thanks very much. Cheers. That is uh, David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joining us here to chat about uh, day one as uh, MPs return to Parliament Hill. And, uh, well, the I guess the real fun begins if you're a political um, uh, guru or, or junkie. This is where uh, the fireworks seem to fly, and we'll certainly see some in the fall session. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario has been negotiating with the federal government over the proposed $10 a day daycare plan, and many are predicting that demand for daycare services is going to surge once a deal is eventually reached. Carolyn Ferns is policy coordinator with the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So how much of a surge are we expecting here? <laughs> well, of course, I mean, step one is that the Ontario government needs to sign a deal with the federal government for child care. Um, and one of the reasons that, you know, our organization and so many others, including municipalities and the business community, are pushing Ontario, Ontario so hard on this is that we know signing the deal is just step one. And then we all have to get to work, you know, making it happen, making childcare more affordable um, and expanding spaces. You know, if childcare fees get lowered to $10 a day, you can imagine many, many more families, thousands more, are going to want to access childcare. Um, and so, you know, it's going to need to be a creation of hundreds of thousands of new childcare spaces across the province over time. So how does this happen and can this surge be handled? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. That's a, a key question. 
because, of course, the first uh, the first step of the federal plan is to cut child care fees in half, you know, existing child care fees. Um, and, uh, you know, that's good news for those families. But then, you know, we have to talk about how do we expand child care. Um, you know, one of the things that's so important in Ontario is that our municipalities have a big role to play in this. So cities like Hamilton um, are going to have to develop um, child care expansion plans, really, to plan where uh, new child care spaces can go. Now, in Ontario, we've, for a long time, we've put new child care spaces in schools, and that's good. But that's not going to meet all of the demand that we're going to be, uh, be creating. Um, so we're going to have to come up and, and be creative with how we create new childcare spaces. So at the end of the day, you know, once this is eventually approved, and Education Minister mm-hmm. Stephen Lecce has said that it, you know, a deal is on the horizon. I think his quote was, yeah. "This is going to present a new challenge because we we kind of need a new plan to, um, yeah. you know, entertain all these other who other people who are coming into the equation." <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, you know, it, we we will need to. Um, but, you know, one way to think about it, though, is that, you know, thinking about creating new childcare spaces is really a good problem to have. For years, our childcare system has been ignored. And while, you know, if childcare fees go down to $10 a day and that creates a surge in demand and people are on a wait list, you know, those, those same families were there before. It's just that they couldn't afford childcare. So, you know, creating more affordable childcare fees is very positive. Creating new spaces for families to access is going to be great. Um, you know, the other pu- puzzle that we'll have to solve is raising the wages of early childhood educators because you can't create spaces and then not staff them, right? Um, so we're going to have to be able to attract and retain more early childhood educators to our field. Well, and you nailed it too. Not only do we have to pay these individuals uh, more, we're, we're going to need more individuals because with more kids, absolutely. that staff has to grow as well. Is that achievable? Yeah, yeah it is, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, when we talk about decent work and pay, of course, it's because early childhood educators deserve it for the work that they do and the skills that they have. But it's also the way that you recruit and retain more people to the field. Right now, um, you know, early childhood educators can't stay in the profession that they love because they just don't earn enough money to make a career of it. So if we change that, we're going to be able to retain more folks in the field. We're going to be able to recruit more qualified ECEs to staff those programs. And, you know, things are going to go much better than they are now. But as I say, you know, the first step is that Ontario has to sign on the line because that unlocks $10.2 billion or more um, to, to help make all of this happen. And so that's why there's so much clamor for Ontario to sign on because, you know, the rest of us know that we've got to get to work, you know, uh, improving fees, improving wages and expanding spaces. We're talking about negotiations between the Ontario government and the federal government over a $10 a day daycare plan that uh, most other provinces in this country have already signed on to. Only Ontario and New Brunswick are yet to sign on. Carolyn Ferns is our guest. She's a policy coordinator at uh, the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care. Stephen Lecce, as I mentioned earlier, has said that a deal is on the horizon. Are you hearing the same thing? Are we close? Um, You know, what we heard uh, actually just through the media on the weekend is that um, the two parties are going to be sitting down on Tuesday, so the federal government and the Ontario government, and I'm not sure if that's going to be officials or the ministers themselves, are going to be sitting down on Tuesday to start to really hammer out a deal. So it's good to see some movement, So because for a long time, you know, we were just, uh, you know, it was kind of a war of words in the media, and, and the federal government was waiting for Ontario's plan, and Ontario was throwing up roadblocks about the money. So it's good to see movement, and I hope that there are productive discussions. 
because, as I say, we really need the Ontario government to sign on as soon as possible. Um, it's going to be a big job to uh, to get affordable childcare system in place for Ontario. You know, it will take uh, years to make it happen. Um, but the benefits, of course, to families, children, um, our economy and society are huge. Um, and so I hope that the Ontario government is coming at this now um, with a more collaborative approach, because really this is the time to set aside partisanship and for all levels of government, you know, municipality, province and federal government to work together to make this happen for families. I read a comment uh, over the weekend that you had made recently that uh, you, you call the current system a market-based mess. What, what does that mean? Yeah, um, you know, it, it really is. And I think that, uh, you know, families that are trying to uh, navigate the childcare system would probably agree with that. You know, it's, it's a matter of getting on a wait list, you know, probably when you find out that you're pregnant. Um, hoping that you find a space by the time, you know, maternity parental leave are over. Um, and then you have to try to figure out how to pay for a space. And if you don't qualify for subsidy for part of your, your fee, you're paying over $1,000, $2,000 a month. And then because we have a market-based childcare system, those fees, you know, uh, go, you know, to pay for childcare. But at the same time, because we don't have enough public funding into the system, childcare workers are paid very little. So it's not sustainable. Over the pandemic, we saw childcare centers closing down because they just couldn't make it work anymore. So I think that a lot of people have realized that it's time for a new approach and that a publicly funded childcare system is going to make such a positive difference for our social and economic recovery from the pandemic. One of the stumbling blocks, uh, at least identified by Mr. Lecce, is that, you know, after this five-year deal, prices would skyrocket. Do you envision the same thing? Well, you know, it's it's really hard for, uh, you know, the federal government to kind of put more than a five-year window on things. They often get accused of, of you know, um, you know, planning beyond their mandate if they do that. Um, but what they've said right now is that, yes, this is a five-year agreement and that they are making the funding permanent. Um, one of the things that advocates have called for and the federal government has said that they'll do is to put in place uh, federal legislation that enshrines the national child care um, program into law. So that makes it more difficult for a future government to remove. But of course, you know, these are the things of intergovernmental relations where, you know, you've, you've just got to keep the pressure on. I think that what we'll see, though, is that over five years, if this comes, you know, comes into being and families are benefiting from it, it'll be really difficult politically for any future government to take it away. Absolutely. Carolyn, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much for having me. That is Carolyn Ferns, Policy Coordinator, Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care, with her thoughts on the proposed $10 a day daycare plan that uh, still has not been agreed to between the federal government and the Ontario government. It has been uh, agreed upon with uh, all other provinces except for Ontario and New Brunswick. So I guess the clock is ticking. And um, who knows, maybe by week's end or month's end, we uh, might have a deal. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A uh, vote is being held today on Bill 8, which involves paid sick days. And there is also a rally on tap at Queen's Park to urge the government to vote yes on this bill. Here to chat about it is Dr. Gabriel Stephen, a, an emergency physician in Peel region. Dr. Stephen, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about Bill 8. Yeah, so Bill 8 is a uh, bill that's tabled right now that could potentially bring 10 permanent paid sick days for workers in Ontario by ending the Employment Standards Act, and then an additional 14 days during public health emergencies. 
Uh, so this is a bill that was introduced by uh, the NDP uh, government, uh, and uh, it has been agreed upon by opposition parties uh, to get support. But what we're hoping for is that the Ontario Conservative pass this legislation. We have to remember that the Ontario Conservatives have voted down paid sick days over 25 times. And if they want to be the party of yes, then I think we're looking for and urging for them to vote yes on this important bill. Now, I know the Ford government has increased some paid sick days during the pandemic, but that's clearly not enough for employees who really need them in this time of need. Absolutely. So we're really heading into the perfect storm here. So on one hand, uh, we've been confirmed, uh, according to Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Tam, that we will not be out of the pandemic this winter. The virus has proven time and time again that it is adaptable and we need essential legislation that protects our patients. Um, We also know that the three temporary sick days that you're referring to are actually set to expire in the dead of winter when diseases are going to be spreading faster. It's set to expire December 31st of this year, which will mean that workers are left without any essential protections to keep their health uh, safe. Um, So we can't keep just extending temporary measures Workers need permanent protection. Um, this has been something we've been calling for far longer than even this pandemic because we recognize that outside of just COVID-19, paid sick days is an essential piece of legislature that um, health workers know people need in order to stay home if they have the flu, let alone stay home if they had a sprained ankle and they need just time off for their ankle to recover. It's just very basic legislature that we know will improve people's ability to manage their health better. Is the opposition to Bill 8 basically come down to dollars and cents? It'll be too costly to provide this? You know, it's, it's difficult for me to kind of understand uh, where the opposition comes from. We, we actually have great evidence from an economics standpoint, and again, I'm not an economist, but we do have great leg- uh, uh, evidence from an economic standpoint to know from businesses such as the Better Way Alliance, which is a group of small businesses here in Ontario, that talk about it actually makes sense for businesses to provide paid sick days because we know that businesses don't want workers coming in when they're sick and potentially spreading an occupational um, uh, exposure uh, to shut down the whole business potentially if everyone starts getting sick with the flu. From a cost-effectiveness standpoint, paid sick days may actually be great. So it's difficult for me to imagine where the opposition is coming from. But we're at this situation now where we're looking at um, tremendous support for paid sick days, both uh, from medical officers of health, from associations, uh, health authorities. um, But then we're also starting to see a mounting number of support from also small businesses via uh, groups like the Better Way Alliance as well, calling for paid sick days good, solid policies. And that's interesting because I think at the end of the day, you know, this could be an extra cost for some businesses, but I think they'd rather be safe and healthy and have a more productive workforce than the opposite. Absolutely. And we know the impacts of this pandemic on our economic system has been devastating. Um, I can't imagine what it's going to be like as we head into the winter if we don't have every tool available to make sure that we keep businesses open. And paid sick days is an essential tool um, and, and I'm worried, uh, frankly, about what would what we could see in the wintertime if we uh, don't um, put forward measures like this. 
We're talking with Dr. Gabriel Stephen, an emergency physician in Peel on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, and our discussion revolves around Bill 8, which involves paid sick days. So what is the likelihood, as you mentioned, the Ford government has uh, you know, quashed this idea 25 times in the past. What's the likelihood of this bill passing? Uh, so we're going to try our best. Um, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what's going to be in the works. Um, but t- frankly, this is a great bill. It's supported uh, strongly um, among health workers. Uh, we are doing a rally this morning in support of this bill. Um, so if we're waiting for a time to support workers and uh, be a worker party, this is the time now. Um, this is what workers need. This is what we need to keep us safe. Um, and this is the time to do it. What time does the rally begin and how many people do you expect there? Uh, so it's going to be at 9 o'clock this morning, um, and uh, there's going to be a group of health workers. It'll be uh, um, uh, hard for me to know exactly how many people are going to show up, but there's going to be speakers and people going to be talking uh, about the paid sick days um, uh, campaign at that time. You being on the front line as well, you are keenly uh, you know, in the know in terms of uh, how a uh, unhealthy person could impact a workforce if they do go back to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going into work when you're sick, um, we know that occupational exposures uh, to flu, for example, and a lack of paid sick days spreads the flu. Um, We know that uh, paid sick days, um, the WHO, uh, the CDC recognize that paid sick days are important legislatures in pandemic times as well. Uh, The lack of paid sick days we know in studies was um, one of the contributors to the spread of the H1N1 uh, pandemic in the United States, at least. So absolutely, there's evidence to suggest that paid sick days will help prevent people from getting sick um, and also prevent people from getting uh, exposures within the workplace. Dr. Stephen, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Good luck with the rally and with Bill 8 as well. Thank you so much for having me. That is Dr. Gabriel Stephen, an emergency physician in Peel, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The CFL's regular season wrapped up this weekend, and six teams, including the Hamilton Tiger Cats, are left standing in the quest for the 108th Grey Cup. Here to chat about it is senior writer with CFL.ca, Chris O'Leary. Chris, good morning. Hey, Rick. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. So 14 games up, 14 games down. The abbreviated CFL season is over. Do you have a big surprise and or a big disappointment from the 2021 campaign? Um, I, I don't know if a big surprise uh, j- jumps out. Um, you know, I think you know, if, you, if you look at Hamilton, I think um, you know, there, there are a lot of high expectations there just based on, on how well they did in 2019, getting to the Grey Cup and then ultimately falling short. Um I thought, you know, not maybe not the season that we thought they'd have. They didn't duplicate that that dominance from 2019. But no, we're we're here. We're heading into the playoffs. They've got a home game, so pretty much where we we thought they would be. Maybe just a, a little bit of a different path. Uh, disappointments. Um, I, I would have to say Edmonton. Um, just looking at the, that roster, still, you know, I looked at that roster yesterday and kind of wondered how they got to the, the three win season that they had. And uh, just a, a lot of talent there. Um, you know, obviously Trevor Harris getting traded. Um, in October was was kind of a, a shock, and uh, yeah, I, I would say just to me, Edmonton just is one that, that I'll, I'll be kind of scratching my head about for a long time. Just the, all, all the pieces there, and they just uh, you know just weren't able to put the ingredients together and, and 
do something good this year. Yeah, not a great start for the Elks era of that franchise. Uh, one of the biggest debates uh, throughout the year has been the most outstanding player debate on who that uh, person is going to be. Uh, I think the odds-on favorite is probably Winnipeg quarterback Zach Caleros. Would you see someone else giving him a good challenge? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's um, it's funny when when you look at the standings and just how dominant they were. I mean, it was it was all Winnipeg. Every every time you you know you looked at the top team, it was it was Winnipeg there. So I think when when you look at the season that they had and the, just how good they were week in and week out, I think it's, it's hard to argue against really anyone else. And um, you know, there were there were good individual seasons, but um, you know, I, th- I think when you have a, a situation where you have a team like the Bombers that, that I think they've won nine in a row. Uh, were eleven and one when they decided to start resting players, and uh, th- they were just so far ahead of the the rest of the pack. You know, I, I think to me, Claris is the the clear favorite, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd be shocked if. Uh if anyone else kind of made their way into that conversation at this point. I would agree. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton is Chris O'Leary, senior writer with CFL.ca, and we're chatting about the 2021 campaign, which is now entering playoff mode this weekend. We have the Eastern and Western Division semifinals. We'll start out West, Calgary at Saskatchewan. These two teams have played some really exciting games this year. Yeah, they have. I think they've, they've seen a lot of each other. I think they played three times in, in four weeks. Um, which is almost kind of like a, a hockey feel, just uh, the, the familiarity with the, the two teams. But uh, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, I, you know, I think uh, Saskatchewan at home is just such a tough out. And then, uh, you know, you look, you look at the opponent that's coming in there in, in the Calgary Stampeders and uh, just a, a really interesting season, right? It's such a bad start. Uh, I think they were two and five out of the gate. Uh, I think went six and one to, to close out the, the regular season. I think they're, they're in a really good spot. Um, you know, and it's, that's a team to me that's very dangerous, right? They've they've got the the veteran leadership in Bowling by Mitchell. Um, you know, he's he's kind of seen everything in, in the CFL, um, and so you can say the same about the the coach there, Dave Dickinson. And um, that's it's it's an organization that knows how to win, and uh, you know they've got that tough road. Um, you know, I think we saw Winnipeg win the the Grey Cup three road games in 2019, and uh, it's it's pretty rare to do that. And so I think that's the the challenge Calgary would face. I think I think they could be up to that task. Um, just just given the experience that they have. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a ton of fun. And, uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be there on, on Sunday, and I, I can't wait to get there. Eastern semifinal, Ticats hosting uh, Montreal, and uh, these two teams have played uh, twice, each winning a game. Uh, what are your expectations in this one? This one I, I really don't know. It's, uh, I think Montreal has made made it kind of such an unknown in, in picking up Trevor Harris in October. Uh, you know, I think he's a very different quarterback than, than Vernon Adams Jr., who, you know, Ticats fans will, uh, will remember from that overtime game a few weeks back. And, uh, to me, which to me was kind of one of the, the games of the year, uh, just a, a crazy comeback. And, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I think you look at the LOS, you've got a great defense. Um, you know, when, when you look at the offense as a whole, they, they love running the ball. They've got a, a great running back and William Sandback. And, uh, and now you've got Trevor Harris, who, you know, we saw go in Montreal in the, uh, the East semifinal two years ago with, with Edmonton and, and kind of, I remember calling it sort of a, a Ricky Ray like performance. I think he had like 16 or 17 straight completion, um, just a very tidy, effective game. And, uh, you know, he, we haven't seen a ton of those kind of games from him this year, but I, I keep thinking that's someone that's very capable of doing that in, in these situations. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I think the Ticats are strong at home, but just there's, there's so much known with, with that Montreal team and there's so many, New, such a new dynamic with Trevor Harris that uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I think uh, I think Orlando Steinauer is going to have his hands full as he schemes this week and kind of uh, gets ready. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be it'll all culminate with the 108th Grey Cup in Hamilton on December 12th. Chris, thanks for the time. Enjoy the rest of your day. 
right. Thanks a lot, Rick. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.